Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. My name is Jason Dick, and I'm the deputy editor at Roll Call. I'm guest hosting for our namesake master podcaster who is on vacation. It's August. It's a time when Congress and the White House throw it into a lower gear, typically, especially during an election year like this, when everybody wants to be out campaigning. But this is the year of the coronavirus pandemic, and nothing is normal. Campaign events are mostly virtual. The nominating conventions are headed that way, too. And Congress and the administration are still fiddling around trying to get an agreement on another relief package. The need for more aid from the government has taken on more urgency with new unemployment claims stopping more than 1 million new claims for the 20th week in a row. COVID deaths have exceeded 150,000. School districts are struggling to figure out how to safely educate kids as they begin a new academic year. Infection rates might be starting to plateau a little bit around the country, but among the newly infected are people that we recognize here in Washington, like members of Congress. Rodney Davis, who's the top Republican on the House Administration Committee, just revealed his positive coronavirus infection. Mike DeWine, the Republican governor of Ohio, had tested positive. President Donald Trump visited the Buckeye State on Thursday, and the governor initially tested positive, but then it turns out that he got a negative test. He's going to get tested again. Still a little scary. So things are shaping up as a summer of discontent, and oh yeah, the election is just under three months away. Joining me on our roundtable today are Hunter Walker, White House correspondent for Yahoo News, Maya King, politics reporter at Politico, and Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Uh, Amanda, before we get started, some of our listeners may not recognize uh, your uh, your publication, the 19th. Uh, it's, it's fairly new, and you're new at it. Uh, why don't you talk just a little bit about that before we get right into the news? Yeah, Jason, thank you. So the 19th news is named for the 19th Amendment, um, which granted women the right to vote. Um, And it's the 100th anniversary of that this summer, this month, later this month. And so we just launched this week. Um, The idea was that uh, women are actually the most engaged part of the electorate and they vote at higher rates than men. But much like politics itself, um, political coverage is still a bit of an old, um, old boys club. Uh, so we exist to create uh, news that women actually want to read. Um, and we're at 19thnews.org. And you can also see our stories in Gannett newspapers like USA Today um, and in other papers across the country. All right. Well, w- welcome. And uh, just a caveat, uh, Amanda Becker and I go back way back. She was a long time ago, a roll call, not that long ago, uh, a, a roll call a reporter uh, who helped sh- uh, welcome me to their ranks uh, way back when. So glad to have you on the show. So let's let's begin with the coronavirus relief talks. Uh, the um, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, and uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows met for the 
uh, I believe it was the 9,000th time in the last seven days uh, to discuss the, the next coronavirus relief package. Uh, this, this thing has become so bogged down that, that we don't even know whether it's the fourth or the fifth or the ninth or the tenth uh, relief package. Um, and, you know, apparently last night, you know, there was this long three hour meeting. Things kind of got a little uh, testy. And, uh, you know, like there were reports that Mark Meadows pounded the table and reminded Pelosi uh, that, uh, you know, what happened the last time the, the administration walked away from talks just got kind of kind of ugly. Uh, Hunter, let, let's let's start with you. Um, you know, the president, is, you know, went went to Ohio yesterday. He kind of he's offshored these negotiations to to Meadows and Mnuchin. Uh, much like the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, what what are you hearing from from your sources in the in the White House, and and why why does this uh, just seem like the same story every single day? Well, yeah, what I was hearing going into last night's talks is that they didn't really have any confidence um, that they would be successful. So there, there's a lot of pessimism about these negotiations. They are insisting that the president, as always, they say he's very personally engaged in these negotiations. Uh, we're not really seeing a ton of evidence of that. I thought it was pretty interesting um, when he had his coronavirus briefing on, I believe it was Wednesday night, um, someone made a comment about um, Senator John Thune from South Dakota um, who's, you know, the, I think, number two in Republican leadership, uh, saying that it would be inappropriate to have the convention speech from the White House. And the president said, uh, oh, the Republican John Thune? As though <laughs> there are so many John Thunes just running around Capitol Hill. Um, so it was pretty interesting, because to me, that was a pretty solid sign that he just has not been engaged with his own party's leadership on these talks. And of course, you know, I think the most important point to make is that there are real consequences for a lot of people here. The unemployment extension has expired, and we're seeing, you know, these record numbers of people without jobs, and they are just not seeing relief coming anytime soon from the federal government. And and I actually, like what you were saying about the, you know, they went into the talks not thinking that they're they were going to be able to be very fruitful. Uh, we've got a clip of, a, of an interview that the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, did with CNBC's uh, Jim Cramer earlier in the day before the talks got underway, in which uh, she had some fairly uh, pointed words ab about her uh, Republican uh, colleagues. Perhaps you mistook them for somebody who gives a damn. That's the problem. Uh, see, the thing is, they don't believe in governance, and that requires some acts of government. Maya? Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> No, it's just, uh, that that's quite the statement. Right. I mean, it, this is the sort of thing, uh, Amanda, that, uh, you know, the, the speaker is a, you know, has a well-deserved uh, reputation for for being a, a tough negotiator. Um, and also, she's got to be thinking about the election, you know, even if even if she is, you know, has the, the best motivations to get a deal. I mean, she's got to be keeping this this election. I mean, what are you what are you hearing about, like some of the tensions uh, that's coming out of uh, just from a, an electoral standpoint uh, with these negotiations? I can take that one. Um, yeah. What I am hearing. <laughs> so I just spent a week in Indiana and Michigan and Ohio. And I can tell you on the ground across America, uh, they do not care who's in charge of the negotiations. Uh, they just want it done. And they, I, every single person I talked to out of several dozen um, said that 
you know, we are not yet at a point where these benefits should be ended, that people are still struggling, um, that they're trying to go back to work, but they aren't getting as much hours, um, that they might have to scale back their hours, even, even if they are back at work, if school doesn't start in the fall. Um, so I, I think that every member of Congress should be uh, concerned about this and working on this. Maya, does, uh, what, what are you, you know, hearing about just how, who is be, be, the more nervous about this? I mean, obviously we've got a split, you know, Congress with Republicans controlling the Senate and, and Democrats in the House. So we have this uh, kind of balance of power. But who, who stands to lose the most from a campaign perspective? It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, it's it's tough. I think both to Amanda and um, and Hunter's point, there's a lot on the line for people right now. Like constituents across the country are saying, "Look, I I really don't care who makes this final decision, but I have food to put on the table, and I I need a job. I need money." And I mean, I think that's what this boils down to. The biggest losers right now are are, are the American people. I would say. Um, but it does put a lot of pressure, particularly on Democrats who have been coming out and saying, you know, we're not getting the money that we need. We don't we haven't come to um, a consensus on exactly the how much funding um, we're going to be able to provide. And I think a number of Democrats, particularly those in advisory roles, are saying, look, Republicans aren't coming out and saying the same thing. Why aren't you going back to the table and, and fighting? I mean, this is what we put you in office for essentially. So it's really hard to tell exactly who should be more nervous here. I think Democrats um, are, are hoping to make good on their promises and Republicans are hoping to just hold on to their increasingly um, sensitive seats. And so, I mean, with that, you know, it, it really just all depends. But the bottom line is there they need to come to some sort of a consensus before um, people really start panicking. And if I, if I may, I think it's important to pull back here a little bit because, you know, we're talking about these negotiations, we're talking about potential electoral consequences, but the reality is that America's entire coronavirus policy seems to have been dictated by our government, and this, I, I would implicate both parties in this, our government's disinterest or, or lack of willingness um, to giving people social welfare. Uh, we, we sort of knew in March what was going to be needed to, you know, combat this virus, an aggressive lockdown. And the objection to that here in America was always economic. We saw other countries really shut down for, you know, four-ish weeks. In England, they had a scheme to pay people 80% of lost wages. We never reached that level, and we never reached a proper lockdown. And that's part of why we now have, you know, these death rates and these numbers that you're not seeing anywhere else in the development world. Uh, so I think that's that's the backdrop here is that, you know, there's argument over whether local aid should be there. There's argument over, you know, whether the benefit should be at that $600 level that it was initially at. But the reality is part of the reason that we're not back on our feet is that we didn't just cover people's incomes in the first place. So it was sort of this penny wise and pound foolish thing. Uh, you know, it's easy for Pelosi to stand up there now and say Republicans are being callous. But I do know, you know, within the Democratic caucus, there's a lot of upset towards her and how she's handled Trump in general. And I think as much as we can say the White House is to blame for not sparking these negotiations earlier, Nancy Pelosi wasn't exactly making this point, you know, a month ago, six weeks ago, as this deadline loomed. And and I wonder, um, Amanda, like, you know, one of the things that we've seen with the speaker is that she 
um, you know, even given some of the misgivings in, in her caucus, as Hunter just sort of spelled out, she comes from a more of a, of a, a, a sort of a stronger position because Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, he he doesn't even know if he has half of his uh, his own Senate Republican colleagues who could sign off on the the legislative package that he put together, which was about a third the size of of the House Democrats. So, I mean, is is that partially to blame? Just just sort of raw power politics here. I mean, Pelosi, I think her greatest strength is keeping her caucus in line behind her. She is very good at that. Um, And, you know, I did not see any indication that at this point in time, voters are blaming one party or the other. And that's who matters here is voters. But if they do not get this done, they will start paying closer attention and they will start to decide uh, who they're going to assign blame to. I also would not underestimate um, how important... Uh, the part of this package related to reopening schools is. There are $100 billion being held up right now um, until they get this done. Schools are already trying to reopen across the country. Um, It is all that parents are paying attention to in any district across this country. And so if Congress does not get this done soon, then people, I think, will start deciding, you know, Pelosi's responsible or McConnell's responsible or Trump is responsible. And and Maya, I wonder, like, I uh, I mean, I, I have this, like, strange, you know, sort of history of before becoming a journalist, I was a teacher, and I, I just, I can't imagine what it would be like if I was still in the classroom getting, you know, like, wondering if I was going to be um, heading in. I mean, is is part of the is part of the issue here that like we just have so many different types of of school districts? I mean, no one decision is going to be the same as the other, but we kind of expect that that there will be some uniformity. Well, I think I think you just hit the nail on the head. No one decision is going to be like another. Um, and I think that also has to do with uh, the allocation of resources, because what we're also talking about here um, is the the impact of of the structural inequality in this country as well. You know, obviously, we've already seen pictures from several schools where uh, the, the hallways are very crowded and students are um, really not social distancing or wearing masks. But what isn't really being talked about Um, are the students who are going back to communities where they might live with older relatives or they might work with, um, with old, with people who are in really vulnerable in that vulnerable category. And so one thing that really hasn't been touched on much that I've seen yet is this idea of the fact that, you know, low income communities are really going to, they really stand to be the most, um, already, I mean, we've already seen, but they really do stand to be further uh, pounded by this virus as a result of the lack of planning and the lack of, of, of resource allocation here. All we're hearing right now is just that students need to go back to school and that they need to open the schools. But from folks that I've talked to, I mean, they're just terrified um, of what that really looks like, yet they really don't have um, any other options either. So it's it's kind of a catch-22, and it just like it goes back to what we've been saying, which is there's really no real plan here. There's, there's not a general direction. And, and in the end, more people will suffer as a result. We're going to take a quick break here then on the Bill Press Pod Roundtable with Hunter Walker, Maya King, Amanda Becker, and me, Jason Dick. Today's podcast brought to you by the great Teamsters Union under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. The Teamsters is a real powerhouse in America's labor movement. In fact, our largest and most diverse union of all with 1.4 million members. We think of them as truck drivers, which they are, but also this, as they say, they represent 
every worker in America from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the good members of the Teamsters Union, thank them for the support of the podcast, direct you to their website to find out more at teamster.org. We're back on the Bill Press Pod Roundtable with Hunter Walker of Yahoo News, Maya King of Politico, Amanda Becker of the 19th, and me, Jason Dick of Roll Call. So right before we went to break, uh, Maya, you were you were discussing a little bit about some of the anxieties that parents, that grandparents, that people are feeling about, like, okay, like, it, even if it would be great to get the kids out of the house, right, uh, it would be great to get them in school, but what about them carrying, you know, like, the, their exposure to to other people? Uh, and that, that brought up to me that we, we heard this ad that Joe Biden, the uh, uh, presumptive Democratic nominee uh, for president, former vice president, ran uh, – that is is kind of interesting because it, it touches on some of those those issues. So we're going to play that ad now. Roger and I decided that we wanted to move to the villages. We were ready to retire. I know other people have things a lot worse, but we feel trapped here because we can't go to be with the ones that we love. I don't blame Donald Trump for the virus. I blame him for his lack of action. And because of that, we're sitting here Zooming with our grandchildren instead of hugging and kissing them. And that's hard. Joe Biden knows that every moment is precious. I trust Joe Biden to get this virus under control. Hunter, uh, what, what, what do you think of that, Ed? I mean, it's like it almost is it oozes Joe Biden's empathy, doesn't it? I mean, first off, one thing that I think is interesting, I believe the villages is that infamous um, Florida senior community that had the uh, Trump golf cart white power parade video. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's really hitting the president where it hurts. I mean, I mean look, we're, we're all going through this right now. You know, I my uncle passed away last month. We had a bizarre socially distanced funeral that I don't think anybody felt great about. Um, you know, as, as Maya was pointing out earlier, I think, um, you know, it, disadvantaged communities have been disproportionately hit by this virus. We're seeing, um, you know, worse numbers among the Black and Latino population. Obviously, you know, people who can't work remotely or whose financial situation is already precarious, they're really hurting. Um, and I think that electorally, obviously, Joe Biden's trying to play this to his advantage. But one thing that we're really seeing is Joe Biden's laying pretty low. He's not, you know, other than ad buys and, you know, these these virtual events, he's, he's not out there as much as a presidential candidate would be or even could be in this pandemic. And I think the reason for that is, is when you see a disaster of this proportion, it is just going to be bad for the incumbent. Even if Trump wasn't as, you know, shambolic and messy as he tends to be, I think we would be seeing, you know, tough poll numbers for him. As is, they're really tough. And so I think, you know, when we get back to the House negotiations and the presidential race, the same thing is true. The Democrats are in a relative position of strength, because even if voters do start to pay attention to, you know, Pelosi's timeline for handling this or, or you know, some something they don't like that Joe Biden said— the anchor is still going to be focused on the incumbent. And I think that's part of the reason you're seeing, I think NBC's electoral model came out last night and had Joe Biden up over 300. I mean, you know, all the numbers are trending towards a landslide. And I think that's just due to all of this upset anger and struggle people are going through. 
Now, Amanda, you uh, you spent some time, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, in uh, Indiana and and Michigan. Uh, you're a, a daughter of the Midwest yourself, being from Ohio, um, Cincinnati area to be exact. Um, you you're you have a recent story of uh, this week up on the 19th about your trip to Macomb County. Uh, this is north of Detroit. This is like kind of the archetypal swing district. It just makes it just gets academics lathered up because they love to study. <laughs> Macomb County. Uh, let's talk about your story a little bit because you spoke to you spoke to some of the people who you know could go a long way to deciding the election. Yeah, the reason I chose it, I was looking for an area where you know it was in one of those three states that Clinton um, was surprised to lose: Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Um, and you know, at the nineteenth, we focus on women, and as it turns out, women are actually basically the only swing voters right now. Um, you know, these suburban white women and white women without college degrees are actually having second thoughts about Trump at a much higher rate than their male counterparts. Um, but there's a lot of complicated kind of emotions and and things that go into. Um, them actually changing their vote. So I wanted to go to Michigan and talk to them firsthand. This is an area that's 40 minutes north of Detroit. Um, it, you know, it goes up along the lake, uh, the, the county itself, the farther south you get in the county and close to Detroit, it's kind of more liberal. It gets more conservative as you go up. And then in the, in the middle, there's these swing areas, even within the county. Uh, these voters are fascinating to me because they really in addition to being swing voters from election to election, this was the birthplace of the so-called Reagan Democrats, by the way, um, they split tickets. And so I spent, I had a lot of conversations with women who voted for Trump in 2016, um, like how he's doing, still think he's doing a pretty good job, yet voted for Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor, two years later, like how, how she's doing, thinks she's doing a good job, that they would probably vote for both again. Um, and, and these so, were a lot of these were Obama voters too. So they went yeah, for Obama, yeah. Trump, Whitmer, Trump, <laughs> or who I spoke to actually Trump was the first Republican they've ever voted for. Um, and you know the general consensus was we don't like what comes out of his mouth, but you know what the past four years have been pretty good for me until this pandemic. And, you know, they, like the woman in the Biden ad, they say they do not blame Trump for the pandemic. Many of them said they wish he'd kind of step aside and let public health experts handle it. Um, but then they would also, you know, this was right after he wore a mask for the first time that I was there. So they were saying, you know, look, he is kind of, you know, coming around on this. He started wearing a mask. He's starting to do the right things. Do I wish he'd done, did it sooner, it, do it sooner? Yes, but, you know, he's, he's finally doing it right now. Um, I also sat in on a focus group of women who were having second thoughts a couple nights ago um, across Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and they were saying a lot of the same things. Um, so there's just some really interesting dynamics going on right now. You know, one waitress told me, I have money saved up for the first time in my bank account in a decade. Um, you know, and if Trump can continue to make that happen, then of course I'm going to be voting for him again, even though I don't like what he says. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what's going on on the ground in a swing County and a swing state. 
Maya, um, you know, we uh, as politics reporters, we were we would in a, in a quote unquote normal time, although that you know increasingly means very little. Um, we would have been gearing up to go to the conventions this month. Uh, the Democratic convention uh, was slated to start on August seventeenth. Uh, the Republican convention was going to follow on August twenty fourth. Um, and now they are both going to be some somewhat uh, all almost all virtual. There will be some skeleton staffs on the ground and and so forth. But we don't even know where Joe Biden and and Donald Trump will be sort of giving their speeches. It, what do you do? You think that this is is something that like hurts or helps the the campaigns? I mean, like what do you, what do you what do you make of this like strange like world we're entering this month? <laughs> I know it's it's really fascinating, and it, it makes it hard harder for us to do um, our jobs, but it's also really interesting. I, I it's hard to tell. I think um, Democrats we we saw last week said basically they've pulled the plug on inviting anyone to Milwaukee at this point, and that a number of the speeches will be remote. Um, And I think that from the beginning, um, Democrats saw the writing on the wall and said, we're going to try our best um, to set an example of of really listening to public health experts and hosting a safe convention. Um, And Republicans weren't really doing that until about last week, Um, particularly as it relates to the showdown in North Carolina and Florida over, you know, whether or not they were going to have the, the pep rally that Trump really wanted. Um, I, I, it's hard to really say if this is going to hurt or help. I think what it will come down to um, is is the, the the power of the speakers. Uh, Joe Biden will, and and the Democrats really will have to deliver um, a pretty a pretty star studded show. I mean, I would expect to see um, really well done <laughs> Zoom videos and the inclusion <laughs> of as many Democratic. Um, uh, heavy hitters as possible. I mean, you know, we 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 who've who've covered politics and and follow um, um, uh, conventions, we know that these are huge pep rallies. These are huge shows. So it's a it's a serious undertaking trying to do that remotely. Though I do think that um, the sweet spot here for both Democrats and Republicans will be capturing folks' attention, making sure that the message is clear. And also making it look like it's a very safe and socially distant and clean production. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I'm still, you know, sort of grappling with how we're going to do. And w- one thing I guess we w- we do know is that we can count on the president not to lie low. Uh, Hunter, yesterday he was uh, in Ohio. We mentioned that uh, earlier, and he he had we ha- we actually have a clip of some of the things that. Uh, I mean, apparently this was at a, you know, this was supposed to be a, an official event to talk about washing machines at Whirlpool or something. But he, he had this to offer. Take away your guns, destroy your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God. He's against guns. He's against energy, our kind of energy. Uh, I don't think he's going to do too well in Ohio. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost speechless. <laughs> Hunter? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a bit reminded of during impeachment when the president had his talking points, his, his Sharpie written talking points, uh, you know, no collusion, I want no quid pro quo. And people set that to music and it actually worked really good. It's like an emo or a punk song, you know, no collusion, no collusion. And I think this is like... No religion, no nothing. Yeah, this is like... <laughs> a 
dark black metal punk hardcore version of John Lennon's Imagine, you know, like <laughs> no religion. Joe Biden wants to kill you. Like it's it's, it's pretty catchy. Um, but you know, I I go back to what I was saying earlier, which is just that like it almost doesn't matter what Trump does as if things are this out of control. Um, in the pandemic. I think that's what we're seeing driving the numbers. And to your point, uh, you know, it has struck me how much we're seeing Trump. As, as a White House reporter who, you know, came down at the start of his administration, we didn't see him in that press briefing room for, I was trying to look this up the other day, but it was, it was I believe, years that he didn't step behind the podium, podium in the briefing room. There was a long stretch of over a year that he didn't do an official press conference. And now it's like every morning we get the email, like, come on down, Donald Trump wants to do questions for a half hour. Um, and I think that shows the awareness of the trouble he He's in the the extreme nature of the messaging shows the awareness of the trouble that he's in. But but you know it it, it really does. It's not going to come down to pomp at these virtual conventions. It's going to be about the reality for people on the ground. And as I was saying earlier, I, I really think we just missed that boat to get this pandemic under control. And it, it's easy to say hindsight is twenty twenty. But you know I was there in March. We were all there in March, and we know what it would have taken to avoid this, and basically every other developed country did it. Uh, we'd be remiss if we did not uh, mention the Veep stakes. Um, <laughs> we, we, we would, uh, uh, it was, a long time ago, last week or something, uh, we thought that today, <laughs> we thought that today Joe Biden would be announcing his uh, vice presidential pick. Uh, Amanda, uh, uh, the, the 19th obviously is interested in, in this story uh, as uh, uh, because he has said that he will pick a woman. Uh, what do we know about who uh, are the, you know, who's on the short list? Right now, people think there are three women remaining on Biden's shortlist. These would be Senator Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, and Karen Bass, uh, with Kamala being the presumed kind of front runner in that selection process. Um, you know, Biden, as my colleague Aaron Haynes likes to point out, said he would be deciding on a VP in the first week of August. Um, he didn't necessarily say that he would be announcing that person or sharing it with the rest of us. And I, you know, we have heard through her reporting and reporting from other outlets that, you know, it's really getting down to a situation where he wants to talk to all of these women one-on-one -on -one in person. Of course, that is really difficult to do when you're holed up in Delaware trying to avoid coronavirus. So one of the things that was happening this week is they were trying to find ways for him to talk to some of these women who are still remaining on his shortlist one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and presumably once that happens, he will be making his decision. And, you know, one of the ways that you can tell that these three women are the ones who are, you know, getting down to the final hours is the amount of oppo that's been dumped on them the past couple weeks. You know, we've seen stories questioning uh, Harris's ambition coming from people uh, in Biden's inner orbit. We have seen stories about Susan Rice's investments. Uh, we have seen coverage of Karen Bass's speeches that she gave at the opening of a Scientology center. So, you know, the more oppo you see being dropped on these women um, gives you a really good idea of who's still on that shortlist. All right, uh, we're uh, we're starting to run a little short of time, uh, but I, I do want to talk about uh, you know our our favorite stories of the week. This is our opportunity to discuss something that may not be. I mean, it may be political, it may it may not be, um, but uh, it's it's a it's a way that we kind of sign off and talk about something that 
you know, we, we saw that that was like, oh, I'm really glad I read that. Uh, Maya, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so the story that, that I've brought is from the Texas Tribune. I thought this was really interesting inside the Trump campaign's effort and struggle to win over black voters in Texas. Um, this reporter, Alex Samuels, went to a Black Voices for Trump event, and she and the speaker were the only two black voices or I guess the speaker really was the only black voice in the room. Um, the entire group uh, was older white voters in, in Texas. And, um, you know, it just speaks to uh, the president's real struggle um, that we've known really since 2016 to win over black voters. But I think with a lot of the uh, conversations about Kanye and just the discussion about whether or not black voters are moving anywhere, I think the final answer there is no. Um, and this was just a and a really interesting and also uh, kind of funny look at 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 where things stand uh, with the Trump campaign and African Americans right now. Hunter, what about you? Man, you know th- this question gets tougher and tougher every time as the news <laughs> is just so dominated by Corona and thoroughly depressing. Uh, I, I guess I'll go with the Vice story by Cameron Joseph uh, that detailed how uh, some of these Republican, you know, they've been w- there's been a lot of reporting, particularly from Vice and New York Magazine, about how Republican operatives are linked to the efforts to get Kanye West on the ballot. Uh, in Cameron's case, he got an email where one of them was literally approaching another. Republican saying, would you be an elector for Trump? There's a, a veteran operative named Rachel, I believe Rachel George in, in Colorado. And she said, "Are you know, I'm quote unquote in on the joke and looking for other people who are in on the joke. Uh, but I think, you know, Amanda was alluding to this earlier. These things are a lot more complicated. And quite frankly, I, I, it seems apparent that certain Republicans are trying to help Kanye, uh, thinking it will hurt Biden. But I just think the electorate is much more complicated than that. And assuming that black voters are going to back Kanye just because he is black or is a rapper um, seems really out of touch and, frankly, a bit racist to me. On a better note, I will tell everybody I have been binge-watching the phenomenal reality television franchise 90 Day Fiancé. It's great. Perfect (laughs) quarantine escape. I especially recommend 90 Day Fiancé Before the 90 Days Season 4, Transcendent Reality Television. Excellent. What about you, Amanda? I wanted to find something that was different because, as Hunter said, coronavirus really uh, dominates kind of everything these these days. Um, I loved a story in the uh, Los Angeles Times by Esmeralda Bermudez. Um, She had put out a call on Twitter a couple weeks ago asking people to share their stories. Her original tweet said, my mom cleaned houses for many years. Her clients were busy people. Um, You know, she talked about how uh, she is now at the L.A. Times and asked people to share their stories about their working class immigrant parents and the sacrifices they made to get them to where they are today. So that story uh, ran, I believe, yesterday in the Los Angeles Times. The headline is on the shoulders of our parents, the cooks, nannies and gardeners. We've traveled far. Excellent. I uh, I too have had trouble. I've I've always struggled with with this part of the because there's just you know it's hard to get away from the news. And I thought that I had I thought that I had something even though I was a little wary about doing a, a retro thing uh, for two weeks in a row because I was on the roundtable last week. I initially had thought Pete Hamill, the legendary journalist from New York, had died this week, and uh, I, I was looking at his December first, nineteen eighty nine Esquire piece, Tea Without Sympathy, in which he talks about uh, the 
uh, Donald Trump phenomena of the 1980s. And, and I thought, oh, this is, this is a good way to wrap up. And then I, I just couldn't do it because I also realized that yesterday was the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. And so I just like, I just kind of stopped and thought like, no, I, I mean, this, I mean, it, it's weird to think like, you know, to just assign value to an anniversary because it's 70 or 75 or, or 10 or whatever. But this was, uh, there was a story in the post in the Washington post that just sort of stopped me in my tracks. Uh, and it was about a, uh, a seven year old Japanese American kid, uh, Howard Kakita, who was in Hiroshima. His, his parents had, had, uh, left him there before the war started with his grandparents. And then after the war started, you know, he was kind of trapped. Uh, and he was in Hiroshima, uh, on August 6, 1945. And it's just a, just a great story, you know, that talks about the way that, you know, the, he, you know, dealt with it and was reunited with his parents. And then eventually, you know, he, he, he still gets checkups from the Japanese government. They pay to, to have his, his health checked out. He's 82 years old. There's fewer and fewer uh, survivors of Hiroshima, uh, but they're still being monitored by the Japanese government. And I don't know, it's just a, it's a great story. And also just a reminder that um, this is, um, that the world is bigger than Donald Trump, uh, even though it's hard to remember that sometimes with, with our news. So uh, all, all great, great stories. And uh, I, uh, I, I, I highly recommend all of them. Um, that's going to do it uh, for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Thank you to Hunter Walker, Maya King, and Amanda Becker, and for all of you for listening. I'm Jason Dick, sitting in for Bill. Before we go, here's a special message from Bill about the next Bill Press Pod. In the next episode of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump here on the Bill Press Pod, we'll talk about the origins of the Goldwater Rule and how it's been used to suppress professional expertise about the mental health of Donald Trump. It's shocking, but one organization, the American Psychiatric Association, has influenced the media to almost always reject psychiatrists explaining the mental deficiency of the President of the United States. You won't want to miss this exploration into the deliberate and dangerous suppression of evidence by the American Psychiatric Association. That's next week with the second installment of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump right here on the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.